Hey everyone, welcome again to the Palladium Podcast. Uh, I'm Ash Milton, Managing Editor here at Palladium Magazine. Today we're talking with Matisse Beton. Uh, we're going to be talking about, uh, at least at the start, his article for Palladium 5. Uh, so the article we're going to be starting our discussion with is called De Gaulle's State of Tomorrow. You can find it on the website as well. Uh, but we included it in our fifth print edition. So Palladium 5 is a uh, Part of our quarterly print series, so four times a year, we uh, cover a particular topic in print form. Uh, that includes not only an anthology of our best work on the topic, we also create original art uh, for it. Uh, we give sort of editorial coverage about the particular topic in our intro, and we host uh, events all, all over the U.S. and other places uh, that uh, launch launch the print, let the community meet each other, uh, and let us get to meet a lot of you who follow the magazine. So if you're interested uh, in, in contributing and in receiving print copies, you can find info about that at palladiumag.com slash subscribe. Again, that's palladiumag.com slash subscribe. Uh, and we promote uh, the print magazines regularly on social media as well. Uh, so follow us on Twitter, uh, and you'll you'll see updates there also for future issues. Uh, Matisse, why don't you take a second and just introduce yourself? Uh, tell us about yourself, your interests, and so on. Sure. Well, thank you for having me. Um, my name is Matisse Bitton. I'm half French, half Moroccan, which would not usually be particularly relevant, but might be for this discussion. Um, I'm a student of political theory at Yale. I studied two main things. Um, one is contemporary Chinese political thought, um, and the other is history of kind of liberalism and its discontents, um, with a specific focus on institutional design. Okay, well, that's certainly up our alley. Um, I think let's uh, just take a moment to review the piece. Uh, so this is one of a number of pieces you've written for us. Um, you know, people can look at the piece on the website as well, but it may be useful just to present the core thesis here. What, what this grew out of was a discussion we had uh, some time back about de Gaulle, um, who is obviously this very interesting figure, but hard to read often, uh, from, especially from like an Anglosphere context. Um, the context de Gaulle is working in is very specific to these particularities of French political culture, uh, the, the different political traditions that are operative there, and then obviously, you know, ultimately the war as well feeds into that and and out of this grows this interesting political settlement um where de gaulle maintains popularity through the fourth republic the republic just after the war and that succeeded vichy um and then de gaulle has a moment in history maybe we can go into the details a bit where he comes back where he takes a republic that had had a very weak executive and he overturns it. A new constitution is implemented, and we get a strong republic. And in that republic, we have elements of the sort of legislative, democratic French republican tradition. We have elements of the, uh, the, the, the monarchic, we could even say, the strong executive coming in. And we have a powerful administrative state. So these, these structures uh, and, and even you know their associated ideologies seem to get reconciled in interesting ways in this Gaullist model in in the French Fifth Republic. And and this model, in, in a lot of ways, when we look around the world, we look at a place like China, we look at the US, we look at Russia, um, different countries with different ideologies, different cultures, 
seem to have converged in interesting ways on this model. Uh, and obviously each of those elements, those three elements, reflects a, a sort of important part of the political culture of the modern world and these these sub-level forces and structures that have helped shape it. So that's uh, that, that's kind of the, the initial thesis. Um, may, it would be probably interesting, Matisse, if we just... Uh, took some time, like, where were you coming from writing this piece? What was the interesting question here for you? Uh, give us some of that context. Yeah, so, I mean, at the political theory level, I think one of the most important questions for kind of modern industrial societies is if we take for granted that modern industrial societies to operate at scale need some kind of centralized bureaucracy, and often a pretty undemocratic one, often a kind of technocratic elite, um, how do we balance that with a more kind of politi explicitly political, explicitly vision-driven, explicitly kind of charismatic leadership <clears throat> that complements and balances this technocratic mode of authority? And some of the responses we see um, are purely escapist. That is to say, they begin with the assumption that they can do away with the technocracy altogether, um, decentralize, um, and have fragmented, state, fragmented states all over again. I think one of the things that Palladium did in that issue was to say, no, if we do take the centralized society for granted as a paradigm, we must confront its trade-offs seriously. And so the trade-off I had in mind here was how to achieve that, that, that symbiosis between the political and the technocratic. Um, and one of the things that, that, that de Gaulle was, was faced with was that question most directly because the successive orders of, I mean, the successive political orders that French, France has had uh, over the past two, three centuries have, have faced the same sclerosis of both the political on the one hand and the technocratic on the other. So the third and fourth republics, which you briefly mentioned, were parliamentary regimes that got nothing done. They were totally paralyzed, that had an extremely weak executive. They struggled to accomplish anything abroad. They struggled to accomplish anything domestically as well. Um, before that, you had Napoleon, who had established an extremely strong technocratic state combined with a charismatic executive. And in that way, he's a preface to the goal. But of course, the problem with Napoleon is that one, he failed the succession problem. Um, and two, he didn't manage to build the kind of intermediary parliamentary institutions that ha helped that balance function properly. And so the idea with the goal was to take all these, these influences, um, the kind of charismatic leadership that some associated with the monarchy or the empire, the technocracy that Napoleon had created and that had developed both under the republics and under Vichy, and these intermediary parliamentary institutions and to fuse them into a coherent whole. And so my tentative thesis in the piece is that his model provides an answer to that fundamental question of how to harmonize technocratic and political modes of authority. And that his answer, as you as you touched on briefly, is one that implicitly or not, consciously or not, is being applied both in the U.S. and, and China and in a rising amount mm -hmm. of countries around the world. So I want to I want to put some some meat on the bones here. You know, we're using these terms: the political, the technocratic. They're quite abstract, um, and, and obviously, you know, the the sort of ideological design doesn't just happen in in a vacuum. Uh, what's happening here is there, there, there are people and institutions in French society and in the world that are very powerful, that are are stakeholders in in, in a sort of objective sense in the society, um, and that have to be dealt with or reconciled somehow to a political order. Uh, can you just give us a picture? I mean, you, you know, you you describe Napoleon and the republics um, here, but 
at at in 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 post war France here, why is it not possible to just like over you know overturn the the administrative state or or cancel out the the republican democratic element? Um, like, what is the what is the base of power for each of these three uh, influences that De Gaulle ends up working with? Sure. I mean, I think there are there are two main factors. The first is that, as you said, there are actual people on the ground with power here. So when we talk about the technocratic state, uh, we're talking about an administrative elite that's that's meritocratic on paper because they come out of elite schools that you can only get into by passing hyper-selective exams, but in practice has been kind of semi-hereditary since the empire. And so you have this kind of base of technocrat that has been running the French state for about 300 years, and de Gaulle can't simply get away with them, can't simply do away with them. He has to deal with the fact that these people are here and that for the French state to function properly, unless we were to completely erase it and build it back up from nothing, which if you're also dealing with a country that you have to rebuild from the ground up is not necessarily a good idea. Um, you have to deal with the fact that that constituency is here and that for better or for worse, they actually constitute much of the brain power of the French political elite. Um, so the French political elite from Napoleon onwards, the aristocracy starts to lose much of the power, but also much of the intellectual capital and so much of the kind of sheer competence required to run the daily, the day-to-day -day functions of the state is concentrated in that technocratic elite, that it's a kind of non-negotiable stakeholder that he has to deal with. So, so the just just thing... to intervene there, where where are these people generally from? Are we talking about you know the like Parisian middle class people? Are these people drawn from all over France or even from all over the empire? Like, wh where what are the origins of of this this administrative class? So most of these people come from the so-called Grands Ecoles, uh, which you can think of as the kind of French Ivy League, although that would be slightly misleading because unlike the Ivy League, which is known for its kind of quote-unquote holistic admissions process, um, these schools have always selected for brute force competence and general knowledge and kind of intellectual abilities in the abstract as, as a sole criterion. Um, <clears throat> now, right from the start, Napoleon designs these schools to be open to anyone who can get in. Um, but as with things like the SAT in the US, in practice, what you see is that they overwhelmingly come from a kind of Parisian, upper middle class, bourgeois class of kind of learned men and women uh, who produce kids who have the right kind of general knowledge because they've been going to the opera since the age of three, have been reading the right books, uh, write well, and so on. And because sheer brute force competence is the only criterion, that class tends to perpetuate itself more or less. So generally speaking, they're not actually from the, the very, very top of French society. Aristocrats struggle uh, to get their kids into these schools to this day. Um, but they are, they are disproportionately from Paris and from the upper middle class. Now you have a sufficient amount of kind of heroes who come from provincial towns, from low, lower backgrounds, or even from outposts of the empire, from, from the periphery of the empire, um, and who do prove tremendously useful for this elite because generally speaking, the kind of their local knowledge is used uh, in meaningful ways. So oftentimes, particularly in the early stages, Napoleon will use the handful of people who come from the outposts of the empire to go to these schools to then administer the regions from which they're from, uh, from which they are. Um, but in the long run, the picture is once the aristocracy loses all power, and that's by the end of Belle Epoque, France, essentially, so say end of the 19th century, um, by that point, this kind of learned upper middle class bourgeoisie that produces technocrats en masse um, represents the major stakeholder to be to be dealt with. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, so l let's go into these other two uh, forces then. Th th this kind of republican democratic element that 
that seems to especially be strong in the like legislative parliamentary republics that that precede the war and the uh the the sort of monarchic or or imperial the, the tradition of the strong executives um which which as far as i can tell that that seems to be something that de gaulle resurrects uh kind of out of um, you know, like there's not a base there. Obviously, it takes it takes a a powerful man who assumes the presidency and rewrites the political order. So perhaps there's not like a ready made base of power for that, but there there is at least this like tradition in the French state of a a a monarch or a Bonaparte or you know an an, an emperor. Like the the French state has this DNA in it. It seems like of a strong executive as well. So it, if you can just kind of like give us more more context on these other two forces and and who like who who are the vehicles for those forces in French society. Sure. So as as a matter of historical background, I mean, basically since Louis the Fourteenth, since Louis the Fourteenth, we're talking you know fifteenth, sixteenth century. Um, at that point, the French monarchy transitions from a kind of fairly decentralized feudal order where the monarch is little more than, you know, the kind of local lord of Paris with a little bit of disproportional influence, transitions from that to a very deliberately centralized state where local particularisms are methodically dismembered and the individual person of the king accumulates more and more power. And you see this, Louis Fourteenth embodies this more than anyone because he builds Versailles and and, and articulates the entirety of French society around his, his personal passions and personal designs. Now, once the revolution happens, you know, what, one of the, the famous phrases of, of Napoleon to describe the revolution is the only thing the revolution accomplished was to put the bourgeoisie on the throne, um, but he considered that he was the bourgeoisie in the analogy. And so he continues in many ways that tradition of a strong executive, which goes basically uninterrupted because in the aftermath of the revolution, the kind of Robespierre-centric terror happens so quickly that this tradition of a strong, embodied executive that concentrates a disproportionate amount of power in his hands never really goes away. Uh, Napoleon perpetuates it, but um, in the aftermath uh, of Napoleon, you have this extremely strange dialectic between a set of dysfunctional parliamentary regimes that are deliberately disembodied because these are fervent anti-monarchists. And so they build regimes that go even further than the Westminster model in making sure that political parties, um, blocks of people, and parliament itself as an institution concentrates all the power, but no individual does. And so you oscillate between that and brief restorations where you know Napoleon III comes back from a bit, Louis-Philippe and some of the, the brief monarchs try to establish a constitutional monarchy. And so you have a series of attempts to reintroduce this kind of charismatic leader at the center of the state, but all of them prove unsuccessful. Um, and so you have this constant dialectic between two dysfunctional modes of government. On the one hand, parliamentary democracies that can't accomplish anything, particularly abroad, and on the other, um, charismatic leaders who come back, try to reestablish the centrality of embodied leadership, but systematically fail. And so by the point de Gaulle de Gaulle rises to power, he's in a kind of unique position because the dominant um, the dominant tradition of parliamentary democracy, which was totally disembodied, although we should nuance that by saying that, and we can talk more about this later, but the Third and the Fourth Republics did have a lot of charismatic leaders, but there were more kind of, you know, parliamentary tribunes who would yell each other on both sides of the parliament, far from being a kind of center of gravity for, for, for the right. state they're, itself. They're so, like powerful yeah. factional leaders and, and rather than unifying that's statesmen right. in that sense. Exactly. So that, that's been the standard for so long. But already, even before the war, 
um, people start to think that this is dysfunctional. Um, and in fact, I mean, you, you do have some historians who say that, of course, Pétain rises to power because people think he's the man of the hour um, because of his record uh, in World War One. He's extremely popular. But a lot of people are also thirsting for a kind of charismatic leader-centric regime, no matter what. And it's almost like Vichy provides an excuse to finally realize this. And this is one of the reasons why you see a ton of particularly right-leaning intellectuals um, join the ranks of Vichy and enthusiastically support the kind of centralization of power in the hands of Pétain even if they don't really like the the objectives of Vichy or the nature of the Vichy regime or its submission to Germany, but purely because they're like, my God, we've had 200 years of institutional sclerosis in France. This might be the only time we can get things done at last. And so some people see Vichy as this kind of carte blanche moment where institutions can get redesigned in that direction. Of course, it ends up shattering the French state to the ground and, and, it, and the, the, the results end up being quite quite far from, from the expectations of those intellectuals. But the actual carte blanche moment comes in the aftermath of the war, where de Gaulle has accumulated a level of popularity virtually unseen in the Third and Fourth Republics, where because these were factional charismatic leaders, they had tremendous popularity among, say, 15% of the population, but parliament was deeply fragmented, and it was a series of kind of Israeli-style dysfunctional coalitions. Um, so for the first time, you see someone who, embod who has basically unlimited support um, among, say, um, 60, 70, 80% of the populace, and even people who would not be um, people whom you would expect to get under the goal's leadership, and I'm thinking here in particular of the communists, who are a major faction after the war, are ready to compromise and to accept the fact that we'll have a kind of strong leader in the person of the goal, embodied in the person of the goal, so long as they restructure the French state in a way that is kind of, you know, deeply um, statist um, and deeply what, what, what people later call dirigiste, um, that is to say, uh, an economy that is state managed. And so he comes at this moment where both because of the impaled popular support and because of the fact that Vichy had already kind of started to destroy the parliamentary tradition of the Third and Fourth Republics, he essentially has carte blanche to rebuild the French state around himself. Um, and around the person of the president by extension. So he comes at a time where there is no real, um, there, is a, there is a thirst for charismatic leadership, and, and there is a, a hope that de Gaulle will, in that regard, accomplish uh, what Pétain and many others had failed to accomplish. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the story there is really kind of interesting, but in this really funny way where... Um... You know, we, we obviously think of de Gaulle as, as one of the great, like, allied leaders. And, and so by extension, he's this defender of liberal democracy and the Western, you know, the, the sort of like Western democratic values. But the the backroom politics of this, uh, you know, like the, the context of like the Algerian war, like we don't need to go into all this, but effectively um, you, you, you have this almost a threat of a coup going on where I think there is, in fact, correct me if I'm wrong, but there is, in fact, a coup that happens in Algeria um, that, where uh, I think they literally establish a committee for public, of public safety, um, you know, a, a great French tradition, uh, the, 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 the same name as, the, as Robespierre's body. And then we, we get de Gaulle, like, called on by the French state to assume you know, power to assume, to assume state power. Uh, and you know, he, he basically is, it's as if like the French state, you know, makes the decision, we will give ourselves over to this man 
so that he can redesign our institutions and hopefully save the country. I mean, this is not like this. This is not any kind of normal democratic. You know, you could have imagined like, oh, we have to have some kind of a, 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 a you know committees to redesign the constitution or something. But they 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 basically tap into this um, this strong executive current, not just in in you know in the new constitution, but even to redesign the state. Uh, as such, like, you know, that that moment of exception that opens up where where the state basically realizes it has to change its fundamental nature. And it just it's it's always been interesting to me that this is, uh, at, again, at, at least in in the Anglosphere, I think this isn't really looked at that closely. It's not that well known, except for people who really study De Gaulle. Um, but I, I, a question for you then, because you mentioned Vichy, which I think is also interesting. Obviously, Vichy is sort of, you know, from the Third to the Fourth Republic, there's just a blank, right? Even in the way that we just recited it earlier. But Vichy was a French state. Uh, it involved most of the French elites that ended up being involved in, in ruling the country after the war were also involved in Vichy to varying degrees. Um, and it's, it is informed by the French culture that it preexisted, and it also shapes what comes after. So I agree with you. I think you cannot ignore Vichy in in this process. Um, but here's a question: Then, do you think that Pétain sort of opens the road for a strong executive to save the French state? Like, without Pétain having played that role in the Vichy period, do you think that the French society would have kind of been conditioned enough to accept what De Gaulle does later on? Um, well, well, it's hard to tell because, as I said, it's it's worth looking at. I mean, as uncomfortable as it makes the French in particular, because I mean, you know, the standard Gaullist narrative, and the the quote that people use all the time is, you know, during the Second World War, France was in London. Um, so you, you're meant to forget that Vichy was France, and as you said, I mean, I, I'll just and do and, sorry, and, and recognize to... this France by most of the Allied powers for a long time. Right. right? Yeah. No, that's right. And and I will just I will just do a kind of side note on what you say before I get to the heart of your question. The elite continuity point you made in passing is crucial um, because it's worth remembering that even the communists, who are perhaps the only significant part of the intelligentsia that by the end of the war can reasonably claim to have been part of the resistance, they, they only turn on Vichy when Stalin turns on Hitler. So for, for a significant part of the occupation, you have people like Sartre, for instance, Sartre and de Beauvoir, who would spend their entire life writing books on how to be a proper resistant? For mo for most of the war, Sartre writes for a Vichy-approved uh, review called Comedia, and De Beauvoir is on Radio Vichy every single Saturday talking about literature and philosophy. Okay, so it's worth noting that the the quasi totality of the French intelligentsia on both the right and the left, the right being more more enthusiastic, of course, but the right the left being at least tacitly accepting the rule of Vichy. And the quasi-totality of the kind of technocratic backbone that would go on to rule the country after the war has some ties to Vichy, more or less explicitly. So the elite continuity is absolutely there. And maybe the faces at the top, the faces of the leaders, and the animating and the animating narratives change. But it's worth noting that the continuity in the French state from the Third Republic to Vichy, to the Fourth, to the Fifth, um, is actually kind of deliberately understated because it's it's uncomfortable for for French people to accept the degree to which 
the state was in fact in in perfect continuity. Right. Well, and and, now, and just to, to to make this point, like this goes across the state. Even Mitterrand, like the socialist president, is gets implicated, and and his critics write books about. You know, he he works for the Vichy state. Uh, he lays flowers in the eighties at Pétain's tomb. Uh, like like this, the whole of French society is actually pretty involved. Uh, in in this process anyway i, I just want to kind of it, like put that on it, people's and, and it's also worth it's also worth noting on the side note that the way in which petain is viewed also changes mm. over time so in the aftermath of the second world war a non a non-insignificant part of the population actually does view petain as this you know kind of old man who did his best and he did what he could uh and he was a little cowardly um, and obviously, de Gaulle is the real savior, and thank God for the Allies. But you know, Pétain, Pétain tried to preserve the French as best as he could, and he was this kind of old veteran who, again, did his best. It's actually interesting. I mean, I, I remember having a discussion with my um, with my grandparents about this. A lot of old French people, i.e., above the age of eighty or 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 even ninety years old, uh, still kind of hold on to that narrative a little mm. bit. Um, it's actually worth noting that the kind of narrative as Pétain is the worst of monsters. Um, and, and, and in part because new historical dev- evidence is discovered uh, on Pétain's view of the Jews and so on, where it becomes clear that he did not merely tacitly cooperate because he had to, but he meaningfully was enthusiastic about some parts of the Nazi right. project. But but it's not just historical evidence. Is De Gaulle himself reshapes almost single-handedly the narrative around Vichy to anchor the idea that he single-handedly rebuilt the French state. He uh, he wa- and, and the people in London with him were France during the war. Pétain is a monster, and the Fifth Republic has absolutely nothing to do with what came before it, or at least what immediately came before it. Um, and so, so the, the narrative, the narrative control here, the narrative building is actually part of part of his statecraft in this exercise. When it comes to your original question, just very briefly on that is to say whether Pétain prepared the stage for a strong executive, I think it's hard not to see a parallel between the context in which Pétain rises to power. And the context in which the goal rises to power, right? I mean, in both cases, you have a, a crisis that creates a state of exception, and the French people and the French state that has been kind of thirsting for this charismatic authority, centralized authority, for about a century, unsuccessfully, um, just hands in the rein to to one man, hoping that he will fix things up. Um, and so, it's definitely true that there is a pattern there. The question, the question of whether or not Pétain himself. Um, paved the way is more difficult because there is a counterfactual in which um, the thirst for a strong leader that was there when, by the time Pétain rises to power is enough to pave the way to someone like the Gaulle to do what he did, particularly when you add the, the popularity that he gained as a war hero. Um, but, but there is also one way in which the fact that Pétain himself kind of structured the state in a way that's semi-similar to the Gaulle in the way in which you know he did strengthened the the technocracy and was really careful about maintaining uh, the technocratic elite in place and at the same time was himself i mean or wanted to be a kind of charismatic leader um who who had a semi-cult of personality around him and who controlled french culture and built a new kind of french narrative that's basically the gaullist model if you forget about parliament for a second um and so the fact that he at least institutionally prepared um prepared France psychologically and otherwise for the rise of the Gauss model. I think that is at least undeniable, at least up to a Interesting. point. Yeah, it's like, you know, you, you could argue that uh, if you wanted to break the Gauss propaganda frame, then France is now in the Sixth Republic, not the Fifth. Right, exactly. Interesting.
Uh, so uh, maybe a final point, you know, as de Gaulle is building up this new office, uh, you make a point in the piece about how the 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 ritual of the French presidency taps also into the DNA of the 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 previous strong executive regime. So you know, both both in the monarchy uh, and then the the Napoleonic era, also with uh, the president's sort of patronage of the Legion of Honor. Um, yeah, and you mentioned that's a Napoleonic practice. Here's the twenty-one gun salute. For the president, that dates back to the monarchy. Um, it's you know we I I kind of want to like pivot away from the, the the these distinctions between these were kings, these were emperors, these are presidents. Like in, in all cases here, we're talking about a state that seems conditioned by a strong executive. Um, now, like the the third republic does actually you know it it help it wins a war. It it lasts for quite a long period. It does not have a strong executive. So is it the case that the French state seems to need a strong executive? Like, is that, do you think that that is somehow baked into its DNA? Or is 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 there something else going on here? Like, just, just a cultural tick? Like, how, how necessary is that, in fact, to how the French state operates to have a strong executive versus a, a choice that is getting made by elites? Yeah, I mean, I think... I think, you know, I mean, you, you do have people who make claims about the kind of fundamental DNA of the French people as leading some kind of embodied king. I mean, in fact, you know, the, the cliche line that's used both by de Gaulle, de Gaulle and Mitterrand and is actually taken up by Macron more recently is that, you know, the, the, the French love to kind of choose and elevate a king only to be able to decapitate right. him. Um, and so, so there is this kind of dual tension in France with, for this like thirst for embodied paternalism followed by kind of immediate distrust and revolt at scale. Um, and, and I think it is fair to say that there is, there is some of that uh, anchored in French culture. I think a more kind of materialist or structuralist explanation is that um, the French state is just very large. I mean, it's kind of banal thing to say, but people don't realize that, you know, two thirds of the French GDP to this day depend upon the public sector. Right, so in America, this number is one third. So America would have to double the size of the federal government. So, so uh, when you say depend be... on, this is not just the public sector as such. This is also like c- government contracts and this kind of thing. So yeah, I, I, one way to think is is owned by or controlled by the public sector. So public private partnerships okay. count under that. Government contracts count under that. So everything that depends upon just kind of public money. Uh, directly or indirectly, that's about two thirds of GDP in France. Right? It's it's a huge number. It's about sixty percent. Uh, so so you, again, the, the the America would almost have to double uh, its 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 public stand, the federal the spending of the federal government to 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 come close to that, uh, or at least in proportional terms. And so there is a way in which, because the French state is such a huge bureaucratic behemoth, and touches in a paternalistic way in so many so many facets. Of, of French life being at the political, uh, at the economic level, at the cultural level, that it just helps to have someone who kind of embodies the state and injects an element of kind of swift dynamism into what otherwise is a kind of vast bureaucratic machine. Now, it's true that the Third Republic did accomplish certain things, but I think, I mean, at least my view of the French Republic, Third Republic, and I think it's not a controversial one uh, in the literature, is that they basically are hyper dysfunctional and struggle to get many things done, but often manage to get it together in times of crisis. Um, so in times of crisis, sometimes domestically, so for instance, you know, one of the very popular governments of the Third Republic is the Popular Front, 
which is a coalition of leftist governments uh, of leftist parties, pardon me, that had been fighting each other for absolutely no reason for about sixty years. It was a pure kind of you know ego battle between between factional leaders that that made the left totally relevant for so long. But basically, the only reason why they get it together is because they are literally far-right demonstrators on the streets of Paris all around, and they come to understand, at least in their mind, that either they get it together or fascists are going to come to power. And so they get it together, they form the Popular Front, and they do pass some useful reforms. And, and, and the Third Republic, it's always like this. So, you know, when there is a war, people get it together temporarily. When there is a crisis, people get it together temporarily. But for almost everything else, it's just incredibly difficult to get anything done. And it's it's worth noting that the, the periods at which, I think it's fair to say, the periods at which the French state manages to be at its most efficient are those when there is some kind of embodied leadership that works in some kind of symbiosis with the bureaucratic behemoth. Uh, and that's that's the model that goal is trying to that the goal is trying to emulate. I think the goal buys into this historiography of the Third and Fourth Republics as fundamentally dysfunctional regimes that were perpetually looking for an equilibrium that was never there and looks to something like a Napoleonic synthesis um, or something like, even something like um, the, the the monarchy as, as a source of inspiration kind of counterbalance these Republican excesses. Yeah, so that that actually opens up the discussion toward this third force a bit, the, let, let's call it the Republican democratic element, right? This, this um, the basing of legitimacy on the will of the French people which you know, I I I think that in Anglosphere political culture, if you talk about something like that, it does have this kind of utilitarian connotation. It's something like you know the the sum total of individual factions or or, or even individual citizens. Like let's figure out how how you can average out and find a compromise. In the French tradition, it's this much more independent thing, independent of any particular part of the French people or or of the country um you 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 have this idea of a more generalized will of the french nation uh and and the the interesting thing to me with this force is that it's the latest one it's the most recently developed one um obviously the strong executive the monarchy dates back well over a thousand years the administrative state dates back till before the revolution also at least a couple hundred years uh, maybe more. It's this democratic element that that's sort of hard to pinpoint because there's so much mythology around it. I think I my sense it's clearly the most mythicized or mythologized of 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 these three elements, and partially because the actual legitimacy of the state depends on it being mythologized. But you know, you you can go into the the DNA here, and it's you know I I've been reading a little bit recently about this period leading up to the revolution and you you have a france where in every big city there are these you know societies of uh philanthropists they'll call themselves or or intellectual discussion houses um you know masonic lodges even the, the these institutions that are basically informed by enlightenment culture that are participated in by aristocrats by you know bourgeois people by clerics by bishops even on occasion uh certainly by a lot of priests you know all all, all the the elites of french society are are involved in this very active network where you have 
you know, the, the enlightenment, the regeneration of society is actively talked about. How do you educate the population? Um, and there, there ends up becoming this overall culture developing of direct participation in initiatives for the benefit of society. And my, you know, my thesis here is that this democratic tradition you know, if we want to locate a culture and a base for it, this is actually where you have to look. There is actually this set of institutions which becomes very active, which which privileges, you know, it, it develops a culture where the the individual should not just be have private concerns, but should devote themselves to the betterment of the country in some sense. And obviously, there's this quiet influence of like the classical tradition. They like to look back at Rome and and and, and these other republics, um, and and they start to even take a moral stance where that sort of you know public republican rigor that is the virtuous thing that is a a a masculine force in society, and the you know the decadence of of the the court or the aristocracy. This is the the thing that you have to overcome and it's it's this super complicated ecosystem but that becomes the base of the revolution right i mean even louis 16th himself like he he participates in this he is seen as a reformer king when he first comes to power before the radicals ultimately move against him like th there there is this thing that starts to condition how French elites think about society, and and it gets cemented by the Republic and by the Empire, and y you know by by the eighteen hundreds, um, it seems like all of French society is more or less conditioned into this this new political culture that develops there. That that's my sort of you know proposed history of where we can actually find the roots of the democratic thing. I I, I guess I'd be just interested here to see. You know, do you, do you have a different perspective here, or or do you think I've missed anything important? No, I think I, that's exactly right. I mean, one of the things that's worth noting in that regard is that um, liberal theorists. I mean, not to get too abstract, but I actually think that the theory is here relevant to understand the kind of mindset that's animating these people. So, liberal theorists in France, at least in practice, um, have a very different conception of the public square than their kind of Anglo parliamentary counterparts. So there is a classic speech by Inman Burke, for instance, which is the speech to the electors of Bristol, in which Burke basically says, look, my role as a representative is not to galvanize your passions. It's not even to represent your will at every moment. It's to kind of filter your will, filter your interest through my personal reflections as someone of higher character and decide for you. <laughs> Interesting. And yeah, you you probably wouldn't get that speech right. today. But it's you? worth noting that this vision of a kind of domesticated public square in which representatives act as a kind of filter and debate between themselves in this kind of great institution of rational, elite-driven deliberation that is parliament is basically the Anglo-liberal tradition. Right, so it's not just Inman Burke, it's almost every Whig and Tory at that point think that way. Even the American founders to some degree think that way. I mean, just, just remember the fact that, you know, um, as much as the American founders may like to think of themselves as Athens 2.0, they also say that, you know, even if every Athenian had been Socrates, Athens would still have been a kind of mobocracy. Right, that's in the Federalist Papers. Madison writes that. Right. Um, and, and in fact... It, I mean, I mean the, you could kind of 
characterize the American thing as as it's it's reading the 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 Greek and Roman classics through the lens, you know, not just of like the general Anglo culture, but you know, also much more through the lens of of the 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 Protestant lens, let's say, um, this this broad, you know, which is a lens where where you're you're interested in the structures as a force right. of order. Um, whereas the French thing, you have the lens of Rousseau, and the question is, where is the vital core of society? Uh, you know, what is like the authentic human essence? How do you tear off all of the false consciousness and this sort of no, that's thing? That's right. And in fact, I mean, you know, another contemporary Burke, uh, you know, Hume, David Hume. And the reason why I'm using Burke, Hume, and these guys are, are as examples is because they're not merely theorists, they're not merely philosophers, they're statesmen in their own rights. And so they represent the thought of people who were actually in charge and who were in institutions at that point. And Hume writes this famous essay um, on, on what he called uh, politics as a science, in which he writes that, you know, what I hate are ideological factions or factions of passion. I'm fine with factions of interest, but not with factions of passion. That is to say, his ideal vision of the public square in which is waiting is one in which every person has a kind of rational self-interest. They all get mediated through representatives who debate in a kind of parliamentary setting that is kind of shielded from popular passions to the greatest extent possible. And then some kind of like rational synthesis comes out of it. Now, of course, that's very far from the ideal, but the fact that this remains at the core of the Anglo-political tradition, both in theory and in practice, I mean, to this day, people who work on deliberative democracy uh, are obsessed with the kind of sanitized, domesticated view of the public square, in which any element of excessive popular passion is a problem, in which the goal of every democratic right. institution is to produce this kind of grand rational synthesis. That whole aspiration, whether in theory or in practice, is almost never there in the French political tradition. As you said, there is almost a kind of opposite contrarian view where republicanism and the kind of liberalism they defend, and I don't want to get caught up in, you know, what is liberalism or whatever, but the point is the kind of ethos that drives them is that they are this vitalistic force of dynamism. They want this dynamic, vibrant public square where people feel engaged in politics. They do love to go out and talk about politics in the streets. Uh, they demonstrate often. They worship their kind of tribunes. Uh, the tribunes go at it in parliament in a kind of deeply aestheticized embodied fashion. I mean, we're miles away from um, from from this kind of de-aestheticized domesticated public square. And the fact that the French state is so large and plays such an important role in determining the kind of day-to-day -day interactions and life of citizens participates in that as well. I mean, institutions like the mandatory military service um, and the sheer fact that the French state, even at the local level, shapes communities and plays a role in culture, in say museums, operas, and so on, that really has no equivalent uh, anywhere in the world that is not you know, China or countries that would be thought of as undemocratic, um, does mean that people, that, that, that the practice of active vitalistic politics is at the core of the French Republican project. Um, and so as much as I think that de Gaulle, at least intuitively or instinctively, um, is not the biggest of fans of parliament as an institution um, or of parliamentary democracy even, he has to contend with the fact that uh, as much as there is this thirst at the, at the end of the Fourth Republic for more embodied leadership, um, people will not accept a, a, an actually Napoleonic regime in which there is no filtering, there is no kind of popular filter of any kind be, between the charismatic grand executive and the kind of technocratic behemoth. 
Right. That it's it the vitalist thing there is super interesting, right? Because I think it's it's the strongest argument against this, you know, the the, the kind of decadence account of liberalism, right? Where you you pretty much lump in liberalism or 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 democracy or what have you with uh, a, a sort of general general social decadence and you you look at the thing here um i find it interesting even just how much the the the, the you know the first generation of republicans and the revolution link together their project with masculinity right it's like you all the propaganda you get propaganda posters where it's like you know these these like neoclassical physiques with, with sword and you know the constitution standing over like broken chalices and crowns and the, the, you know lightning behind them like this very overman style almost of of portraying the thing um you you even get the you know the role of women is pretty much erased out of the public square right it's like uh, you know in in the ancien regime you actually have a, a huge swath of institutions in which women are fairly influential both official and unofficial uh you have like women's education is 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 you know pretty widely seen to especially in the convents uh and you know not just at court but even in the church uh, you know a number of these convents become quite powerful quite culturally influential and then you get the revolution and the revolution actually kind of you know it shuts down a bunch of the the church schools and doesn't open new ones so it's effectively rolling back women's education uh it's it's you know women are not citizens um, and and even you know the most radical Jacobins, you get people like Henri Gregoire, who you know they want to extend citizenship to the to Jews and to uh, you know their like pro Haitian revolution, which is like an extremely radical position, and even they refuse to extend citizenship to women because they they see the Republic as in essence right. It's about virtus virtus, you know this like manly public Republican virtue. Is inherently a masculine force, uh, and and so it is just like ideologically inconceivable that you could have women as citizens. And it's like this is a very different account. Uh, again, obviously something that you know scholars will look at, but I don't think it's in um, the. It's certainly not in the popular consciousness. And I think you know a lot of these these very ideological, these very like theory driven criticisms of liberalism they they lack this kind of historical analysis where you look at the real thing and the societies out of which that culture comes uh and by societies i mean here like the the private you know private clubs and lodge systems and stuff like that um and, and yeah i mean this 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 is the republican culture and it's like this this force in fact does change french society no, that's for sure and i think this is where this is where the the limits of political theory as a discipline come in because it is true that if you look at the French uh, Revolution as a kind of Enlightenment project par excellence, and then your definition of the French Enlightenment is, you know, what did Voltaire and Benjamin Constant say? Um, then you do get an idea that, yes, it's about individual rights and rationality reigning supreme and the prejudices of old withering away as the kind of wind of tolerance, you know, wipes them out. But, but the reality is that you're exactly right. I mean, particularly if you take a look at the animating forces of the Jacobins, people who were leading the charge on the battlefield in practice, people who do take power in the aftermath of the revolution, some of whom go on to work for Napoleon, himself a, a Jacobin once upon a time. Um, you read their writings, you know, I mean, Palladium recently published, I mean, not so long ago, published a piece on Gustave Le Bon's critique of the crowd. 
and the idea that right you know, the, yeah and the and, influence in France or in China right. rather and the idea that the crowd is this kind of you know I mean the crowd particularly in protest and during revolutions um, kind of erases the sovereign rational individual and has this kind of almost bestial kind of animalistic character to it it unleashes a certain kind of energy I mean a lot of Jacobin writers would take a look at this and bite the bullet and say yes absolutely that's what we're after um, and even when we talk about the cult of reason. Um, you know, people. Fo the, the the key word in the cult of reason is cults, not reason. Is one way to put it, right? Which is to say, um, when you think about the concrete institutions, even the monuments that were built um, in the name of the republic or of the revolutionary uh, ethos or narrative, you think of a, a building like the Pantheon, for instance. Um, when you enter the Pantheon in Paris, uh, what you feel is very different from a kind of abstracted, deracinated feeling of you know the triumph of reason or whatever. Right, the, the, these kind of buildings were purposefully built to, to evoke a kind of, as you said, deeply masculine, deeply vitalistic ethos. And so there is a there is a way in which you're right to say most of the criticisms uh, of liberalism or quote unquote liberalism as a tradition, who tend to be to, who tend to have an absurdly ideas driven view of history, I would certainly agree with you on that, um, do tend to focus on the Anglo tradition. Um, and insofar as they focus on the, on, the, on the French tradition at all, they focus on the French tradition at the level of ideas and at the level of ideas only. Um, and I think many of the criticism of, of, of liberalism, at least those that come from a kind of, again, vitalistic right or even Nietzschean left in a way, um, don't really apply um, to something like the French Republican tradition at all. Right. Well, and, you know, uh, the... I sort of made this point earlier, and it's like if you you mentioned you know people will look at Voltaire, they'll look at the the, the writings of these people, but if if you want to understand the culture of like the early French Republican thing, you pretty much want to actually go and look at you know these philanthropic societies that you know exist across the country, and look at their internal culture, right? I mean, let, let, let me give give a sort of adjacent example to this. Um, my wife and I recently saw The Magic Flute uh, here in Toronto, the opera by Mozart. And it, it's an interesting production, right? Because the whole thing is effectively about a Masonic initiation. And in Mozart himself was, you know, he was a member of, of um, the, the, uh, the major aristocratic lodge in Vienna. And the, even the, the tones that are used, you know, they, they, you know, there's one famous tone three notes and they mimic the three knocks that you give at the beginning of I think the master the master mason uh initiation ritual and it's like you you know you imagine this thing being performed and it's a social phenomenon right you you have an audience where people all there's these in jokes basically right and it's like you you know even an outsider sitting there you you'll you'll look at the crowd and you'll see a bunch of guys in the boxes and and you know they're they're sort of nodding and laughing knowingly and you kind of wonder what joke they're getting so to speak and it's and you know obviously i'm i'm referencing austria here um which is is not the main topic but i just bring it up as an example there's there's this vital cultural core of production going on right and a lot of it is not legible or transmissible to those who are not within that and so when you read what the jacobins are trying to do it's like the republican project you could sum it up as the imposition of the culture of the salons and the philanthropic and enlightenment societies on the country like they they have developed this this 
you know, frontier of culture and civilization and for France to progress and develop, uh, it now has to be brought to the whole country. All of France has to be re-educated and integrated into this new culture, into this new political mode. And eventually they come to the conclusion that, you know, the, the monarchy is an obstacle to achieving this and therefore we're going to run it over and execute the office holder. Right. And, and like that's that's, a, 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 you know, whatever opinion one has on that, that's clearly not this like decadent modern laziness of a civilization that that's that's a vital core of energy. Yeah. And in fact, it's worth uh, noting the you know, how, how far they go, even in the aftermath of the revolution to institutionalize uh, that dissemination of the salon ethos, as you put it. Um, because, you know, I mean, one, one, one interesting fact, for instance, is uh, if you go to France and you, you talk to people about the French education system, you'll notice that the French school day is extremely long. So, you know, it starts about 8 a.m. Um, and if you, by, by, the end, by the end of it, you know, it, it ends at, you know, 5 p.m., 6 p.m., and you have at least two hours of homework every day. So it's basically like the school controls your entire day uh, from, from the age of, um, you know, four or five years old to the age of 18. And it's worth noting that, but, but what most people don't know, it was, it was built purposefully in that way. That is to say, to almost deracinate people, to separate them from their religious tradition, from their families, at least up to a point, and to make sure that their primary affiliation, that they were grounded intellectually and otherwise in the Republican ethos, that their loyalty was to the Republic. And in fact, I mean, you know, the, the classic essay on this is Ernest Renan's What is a Nation, where the most, the most famous quote from it is, you know, man is a slave, is not a slave, um, neither to his race, nor to his family, nor to his religion, nor to his culture, nor to the course of rivers, uh, nor, nor to the mountain chains. And he, uh, he, and Renan kind of captures this Republican ethos of the idea is not so much to erase all these other communal influences, although that's certainly there. I mean, the anti-religious component in France is notorious, and it's true that it's been there for hundreds of years. But the idea that even institutions like the school system were built in explicitly as kind of propaganda factories up to a point to instill the Republican Enlightenment ethos into people en masse and prevent them from from developing all sorts of dual loyalties, um, that's how far this kind of explicitly muscular liberalism uh, went. You know, mm -hmm. we're, we're miles away from kind of Schmidt's critique of liberalism as something that hides behind pseudo-neutrality or hides behind all this pretense right. of tolerance and whatever. I mean, all these, not again, the French Republic. Yeah, again, like all these criticisms just go out the window in five seconds if what you're talking about is the, is the French right. Republic. Right. I mean, I think Saint-Just says at some point the, the French Republic uh, is defined by the extermination of its enemies or something like exactly. that. Yeah. Like, this is a completely... I mean, even, uh, you know, one one text I always find interesting is um, the, the so-called uh, Catechism of Robespierre. And it was this document that he never published, but he, he had sort of written it up as an experiment and in in it, you know, he, he talks about like what, what what is undermining the country and he talks about, you know, it's poverty and it's ignorance and it's the false writings put out by lying journalists and, uh, you know, what is the solution? And he sort of says, uh, you know, he, 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 he what, or what is the problem rather? The ignorance of the sans culottes. And so what is his answer? Well, we need it. We need education. We need an abundance of good literature. But it's it's clearly a project. It's not a project of just tapping into the popular sentiment as it exists, right? It's this notion that there is this sort of 
the, like the French nation is something that has to be created. Like it, it almost exists platonically and, and has to be realized. And then, you know, the, 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 the sum of, of his catechism ends in uh, the, this question being proposed, uh, you know, when I'm forgetting the exact wording he uses, but, you know, when, when, when will the establishment, when will the, the powerful people um, allow this to happen? Uh, and he says, never. Uh, and, and so already, and I think this is written fairly early on, you already see this, um, this hard edge of, of the, the enlightenment thing that's realizing, you know, I, I would, I mean, my sense is, you know, you go like 1770 or something, most of these people are basically looking forward to this, you know, an enlightened king, and we're all going to be able to, you know, like, we'll be able to educate the peasants and, and, and maybe extend citizenship to, to other parts of society, uh, this, this very moderate thing, but there is a hard edge, which already sees conflict coming, and, and, you know, is, is even fairly enthusiastic about it. Um, anyway, I, I think this has been an interesting aside. It's like there, there. It shows the power of this tradition in France. But let's let's move it kind of to the modern period now. Um, I I want to look at the Gaul, this Gaullist model that we've looked at as it exists now. So you make the point that. This model, uh, you know, may, maybe what's really happening here is convergence, not so much that the Gaullist model is being explicitly adopted as such, but a lot of countries seem to have built on this. You know, uh, if you think about them, like most of the great powers, they tend to have strong executives, regardless of whether they're presidents or prime ministers or secretary generals, uh, you, you know, whatever they call that leading figure. Most countries have a fairly strong executive. Most have a, a developed and advanced bureaucracy, uh, and, and battles occur as to who controls it. Uh, but but you know they they can't all just personally report to the head of state uh, or the head of government. And most countries also define themselves as democracies. Uh, and, and you know people can argue about the authenticity of some of that, but it's it's you i think you pretty much have to go to like swaziland or somewhere to find a country that does not claim at all even in theory to be a democracy so maybe let's just talk about like what what happened there um we've talked about some very french specific things going on here but why why is this convergence happened yeah i mean so the hyper broad picture argument here would be something on the lines of if it, it is indeed the case that large-scale industrial societies, which is what great powers are um, by and large or almost exclusively, um, do need this bureaucratic, technocratic behemoth to survive, but at the same time do need this kind of embodied narrative center to give meaning, to give more purpose, to give a, a direction to what would other, otherwise be a kind of directionless technocracy, um, then the Gaullist model makes sense across the board in theory. But, but, but of course, the reality is that it's much more country-specific than that. Um, so in a country like the U.S., for instance, you see a gradual dismemberment of both st of state capacity on the one hand, but also a gradual outsourcing of power um, from Congress to the administrative state on the one hand, 
and then towards the executive branch that is being reinforced on the other. And these happens in a set in a set of revolutions. You know, this is the irony of, about America, which is oftentimes Americans will, will laugh at the French by saying, you know, you're on the fifth republic, we're on the first, and we still have the same constitution. But of course, America is at least, you know, on on, on its third or fourth republics, because, you know, you have a, fir- a first Republican change of republic when, when Lincoln centralizes this, the federal government like never before in the aftermath of the Civil War. Then you have the kind of New Deal jurisprudence uh, that concentrates executive power, st- starts to build the administrative state, um, and paves the way to kind of further development towards what we might call the Gaullist model. You have then a kind of unitary executive uh, jurisprudence that builds up slowly but surely, and again, strengthens the synthesis between a more and more unaccountable bureaucracy and a more and more powerful executive that has the ability to manage at least a growing number of states of exception at scale. Um, and so in a country like America, this mix of parliamentary regimes being willing uh, and in fact enthusiastic about outsourcing their power to the technocracy because it allows them to focus on fundraising, on campaigning, on surface level things that come with a kind of social media driven uh, contemporary public square um, combined with a reinforcement of executive power that comes through a set of kind of jurisprudential revolutions, each of which corresponds to a kind of state of exception of a kind. So you can think of, you know, the War of Terror as one of one state of exception, um, the Great Depression as a state of exception, a, a series of states of exception that become permanent uh, in a kind of standard uh, Schmittian way. The, these things explain, and, and I think you can see some similar trends across the Western world with Parliament dismembering their own power and outsourcing it enthusiastically to focus on on the pantomime that is electoral politics. Um, but then you have a completely different story, or at least a partially different story, in a country like China, uh, where in a country like China there is this kind of permanent dialectic between uh, the Mandarinate that has been there in different forms for about you know more than a thousand years. In fact, it's one of the most interesting things about China is that in a way they they modernize, they face the cri- the institutional crisis of modernity. That is the crisis of creating a centralized, institutionalized bureaucracy um, thousands of years before we do. Um, and and that permanent dialectic between emperor style figures and a mandarinate that is more or less more or less clerotic, more or less um, directionless, depending on the time period. Uh, keeps on creating these situations where people like she act as an emperor-like figure, and then the party um, is gradually uh, reproducing a kind of Confucian political meritocracy model. I mean, I wrote another piece about that, so I don't want to—I don't want to spend too much time on this. But, but yeah. So I think the broad narrative is: it seems like the inescapability of having a technocratic bureaucratic state, and at the same time of having a kind of embodied core narrative center to counterbalance the defects of that of that bureaucratic state mean that the st- the Gaullist model is a blueprint for all large-scale industrial societies. But the reality is that if you take a look at a granular level, of course, um, every country has individual circumstances. And I think as much as you can draw patterns uh, in Western liberal democracies, um, I don't think you can, you can quite draw patterns in a way that's so large as to include both both China and the U.S. in a kind of single linear narrative towards right. towards a kind of Gaulle synthesis. Yeah, I think that's right. It, it, again, the, I think the historical lens is usually important in these things. That said, you know, the, 
the the strong executives thing and the the what democracy means in any particular circumstance i think these vary quite a bit the the administrative the technocratic part of this that's an interesting phenomenon because i think that's actually uh a little more uniform in the sense that it comes out of not just state culture but also the form of economy right the the spread of industrial society everywhere um you you get it, it, i mean it's this interesting thing going on right because um what what you have in the french case especially in the early in the first republic you you have and that administrative culture is completely different from the modern one in that it is very informed by yeah systematization but it's kind of this like aristocratic enlightenment systematization um and it's based on very personal relationships between the people involved what you get later on what you get now uh you know it, what is the logic of our administrative structures uh it's partially it it's coming out of the industrial period and like the modern corporate culture um you know it, it, the hierarchies are very clear tasks are very made very discreet um and the you know it, even even the way that so called like organizational cultures get developed are very very similar um with with the presence of things like hr departments um there there's a convergence between the industrial like the economic institutions and the administrative institutions and that's that's a different force than existed in France early on although i i guess you know when we're talking about de gaulle he's already operating in that logic as well the other thing the the second element in in the administrative thing is uh like the profession the ideology of professionalism right and so you yeah it, it, the meritocratic thing is part of that the idea that you know you you have a principal agent relationship with with someone else in the organization and ultimately like with the stakeholders of the organization you're kind of you are ful fulfilling an office right and and you are replaceable in that sense and you are supposed to you know depersonalize yourself in your work you're supposed to think about the intra the goals of your position in an organization you're supposed to put uh the the organization first uh you know ideally uh and and like there there is that that professional culture is a an important component here and i think what you see around the world is like this is actually the thing that's extremely difficult to do right like pretending to be a democracy or having elections you know most countries are capable of doing that even if they don't count the votes accurately strong executive that's kind of harder but you know i i i think there's enough roots to that 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 a lot of places figure out out right like either you have it be official or you have like a, a military general you know or or you have some guy within the state who just you know purges his enemies and takes power or you have the like pre-existing tradition of a strong leadership um there's multiple roads there but that administrative professional thing that's extremely hard to get right and i mean you see right i, I think you go to south america or you go to uh, you know a number of middle eastern countries you go to certain african states and it's constantly running up against patronage systems against maybe tribal loyalties like it is very hard to socialize people into the professional ideology and into the uh like the, the just the the mode and tempo of work 
in in that kind of large scale administrative organization. And so I think that you made the point early about the French schools and how they existed to take French children out of their homes and their their religious customs and so on and socialize them for like eight to 12 hours a day. And, you know, in obviously our society, our jobs do this, right? Most people are working in a an organization that pretty much has an administrative culture. Um, even if they're small business owners or something, they kind of have to participate in the tax system. You know, they, they, they have to match a corporate form of some kind. Pretty much everyone in the society is is socialized into this thing. So I, I want to kind of look at that. And this implies to me that what's what's going to happen here, like with this model is that societies that have been able to develop that those you know those two pillars the like industrialized society and professional culture they seem to be able to maintain this kind of state a lot of places have either half developed or like the the you know you let's like let's look at Nigeria for example where you do have like very modern economic centers in a place like Lagos um, and in the South generally, but tribal loyalties, religious loyalties, um, they have not been overcome. And it is increasingly unclear that a, like the, 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 the equivalent cultural core that existed in the West in like the 1800s exists in a lot of parts of the world. And I mean, China's solution to this problem is like, you know the 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 east that you know the east coast and and the core of china has in fact developed these systems and now they go to a place like xinjiang and they're going to impose them from the top down and they're simply going to replace local populations with different cultural norms with ones that have these like industrial administrative norms you know the, the, there seems to be this like wall that the gaullist thing or you know that general model is running up against in a lot of places so I, I want to hear a little bit about where you see the future of this model going. Like, has it been maxed out as something viable? Do you think it actually has enough energy that it can spread, you know, further? Like, give me a sense of where you see this going. Yeah, so I think, I mean, so first of all, a couple of remarks about what you said. I think one of the important, one of the important points is, one, again, it's worth noting the lengths to which the French system in its different iterations went to in order to impose that model. So, you know, I mean, the dismemberment of local particularisms, uh, the dismemberment of so many communal institutions, the imposition of a state paternalistic in a way that no Western liberal, quote unquote, Western liberal democracy can match or, or come even close to all of that. But also the fact that um, the goal was very lucky in terms of elite production pipeline, uh, when he came to power and tried to build that model around this this huge technocratic behemoth, because the Grands Ecole, uh, which Napoleon had founded, were meant to produce this kind of imperial administrative elite uh, in the 18th century. Um, they continued throughout the 19th and 20th century. And so by the time de Gaulle um, comes to power, there is that culture that is there. There is this core of institution that is there. And he has carte blanche to reshape it as he pleases. So he creates the school that is now hyper famous in France uh, called the National School of Administration. Um, and this is where basically every president of the Fifth Republic comes from. This is where basically every technocratic leader in the country comes from. Um, and he creates it out of thin air. 
uh, in the 1950s, and it instantly becomes the most prestigious school in France you could possibly go to. Now, if you, if you think about what that would look like in a country like the US, the story would be altogether different because you have stakeholders that are private, uh, like Harvard, like Yale, that have tremendous legacy prestige, that have a set of individual interests that are enmeshed within a kind of established elite production pipeline. And it's not like the state can just come in and say, okay, let's nationalize the entire Ivy League, or let's create a kind of national American university out of thin air that's going to produce technocrats en masse. And this is instantly going to become the most prestigious thing that every 16-year-old uh, in America wants to do. They want to become civil servant now. And that's actually one of the main cultural differences that remains to this day uh, in France, which is that if you're an upper-class, hyper-ambitious Frenchman, you do want to go to the National School Administration, and the job you want is high-level civil servant. And so at these schools, the people who end up at places, say, like, say, McKinsey, Goldman Sachs, or the cliche destinations that we would associate with Ivy Leaguers here, um, they're actually the people at the very bottom of the class who could not make it. Um, and so there, there is a way in which France's uh, state religion uh, that is so coupled with its elite production pipeline and that is so coupled with this institutional structure makes the Gaullist model possible. And in fact, I mean, you did say, you did talk about uh, synergies between the kind of administrative culture um, that exists in the public sector and the kind of administrative culture that exists in the private sector. It's worth noting that in that regard, I actually find that the US and, and France are kind of flipped, um, which is to say that in the US, and this is the cliche point about the kind of, you know, neoliberal state, quote unquote, it's that the managerialism that begins in large scale industrial companies, a la Ford and so on, uh, spills over to the state. And now essentially the American administrative state is, I mean, you may think of it as a kind of oversized HR department with all the pathologies and, and the culture of a kind of standard oversized industrial behemoth. Um, in France, it's almost the opposite um, in the sense of almost every successful large scale company in France is a public-private partnership that is run by someone who spent this, his entire life um, in, well, first Republican schools, then a grande école, and then some kind of technocratic institution for a while. And so it's more the culture that the goal that the goal um, wanted to create in these um, in these institutions is the one that is dominating the, 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 the private sector as well. And it's worth noting that it's quite different from this kind of hyper-managerial, hyper-specialized professionalism. It's not, it's not quite what it is, right? Because in France, in most of the grands écoles, again, select for brute force uh, intellectual performance and general knowledge. So they select for who you are uh, as much as, as, as they select for what you do. Uh, and so this is one of the reasons why uh, people often talk of a kind of aristocracy of state in France when they talk about high-level civil servants. And I think that term is actually quite right because a lot of these jobs, I mean, f basically these people have free reign, are not really accountable to anyone, have a job for life. And their job functions are extremely ambiguous and sometimes approach the level of like, you know, they're just a socialite that has to be close to power no matter who's in charge on paper. Um, so for instance, in France, you have this institution called the, the Council of State, uh, where Macron worked for a short while. And it's where the people who are in the top, the top three students every year at the National School of Administration uh, go to work for the Council of State. And it's this very opaque institution whose only duty is to produce reports for the president. No matter who the president is, they produce reports for the president and they're France's highest administrative body. 
But in practice, all they do is they act as this permanent cast of viziers who are there for successive presidents to access this kind of institutional memory of this aristocracy of state that understands itself better than anyone else and to some degree ensures continuity in the French model across space and time. And so there you have a kind of aesthetic and a kind of institutional structure that's quite far removed from what we think of maybe in the US or even in general when you think of as the, when we think of the administrative state as this kind of, again, very managerial, uh, very hyper-professionalized, uh, task-focused, um, anti-chamber. Um, that's, not, that's not quite the reality there. The, la the last point I would say, the last point I would make, and this is uh, to touch on the heart of your question, is that paradoxically enough, I think in France, the technocratic behemoth part of the model is actually realized very, very, in a very satisfactory way. Um, so France does produce this kind of competent class of technocrats um, who run the state in a fairly you know, efficient manner. I mean, France is consistently ranked uh, either first in the world or in the top three in the world for soft power because its kind of diplomatic class is extremely high quality. Um, its administrative class is, is pretty high quality. What the French model actually struggles to do is to produce charismatic executives who match the goals, the goals stature. So you know, this traditional narrative about the French Fifth Republic is that you have great presidents up to Mitterrand, and then it goes down the downhill from there. Uh, and in fact, funnily enough, you, you see this happening almost physically with a set of symbols that vanish as the small presidents take over. So one of the famous examples is de Gaulle wanted the president to always be seated when he appears in public or when he gives uh, press conferences. Uh, why? Because the French kings were seated. Right, on the throne. Interesting. That's right. And so he wanted to be seated. And everyone, including Mitterrand, and on a side note, you know, Mitterrand is the first uh, uh, socialist president of the Fifth Republic, but the first thing he does when he gets elected is he goes to a cemetery of kings um, and pays, them, pays a tribute to them. Right. So he really, he really bought into the model of, you know, the, the French president to the king elected for seven years that the goal that the goal envisioned. And so all these great presidents, they accept the aesthetic baggage that comes with the Gaullist model. They accept uh, their duty to be the kind of narrative core of the country. Um, post Mitterrand, that disappears, and you essentially have people who are um, more or less technocrats in chief. And that makes the model tremendously dysfunctional because, again, the French state is built for this kind of like you know kind of dynamic embodied public square and technocrats in chief just are not cutting it and you see people like macron um trying to re-inject an element of kind of you know gaulist grandeur into his exercise you see him you know uh wearing all sorts of of, of costumes you see him paying a lot of attention to these to his aesthetics when he comes out in public and he does it in a kind of more Americanized Barack Obama way, um, but it's his way of reinjecting an element of dynamism into an executive that has completely lost its purpose. So he also, I, I remember, sat in a, like a lot of the early photos you see of him. He's always sitting. Right. Uh, it, it's not so much recently, but that uh, it, yeah, your your point about that made me think of it. Yeah, and so so this is where uh, I will say for me the challenge is not merely in the construction of a, of a technocratic elite. It's also in the perpetuation of a, of a charismatic leader. You know, it's, it's one thing to have a leader um, that I think most countries are able to, you know, pull that off. But having the kind of leader who can actually counterbalance and domesticate a technocratic leviathan and orient it towards a real political purpose and wield its office, the power of its office to the fullest extent without kind of descending into, into actual tyranny, um, 
that that is a challenge that I think the French haven't been able to 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 face, um, and that no other country really has been has been able to face. So I think you're you're absolutely right when it comes to the developmentalist challenge that comes with the Gaullist model and its demanding preconditions, namely four countries that have not gone through the Industrial Revolution when France did, that cannot afford, uh, because of you know human rights concerns or you know whatever, to dismember communal uh, attachments and to rebuild the social fabric around this Gaullist model in a way that France did, is the model, are we capable of exporting the model there? My tentative answer would be yes, um, because I tend to think that for better or for worse, this kind of industrialization process is somewhat inescapable um, in these countries and that they are going to have to find uh, a way, however bastardized, to pull it off. But the extent to which it will be as satisfactory, I think that's a different question. I think one of the hypotheses that I have is that what you'll see is a kind of monstrosity version of the model where you take the broad structure of you know strong executive and strong technocracy, but you actually have a bastardized version of both where on the technocratic side, it's a kind of hyper-corrupt, patronage-driven, uh, not really meritocratic or if meritocratic, hyper-managerial, uh, lacking the kind of dynamism and the kind of aristocracy of state that, that, that de Gaulle had in mind. So you see a bastardized version of the technocratic component, and then on the kind of charismatic leader component, particularly in developing countries, you can see just the perpetuation of, of dysfunctional dynasties. Um, so I, I, don't, I, do, I don't know is the, short, is the short answer, but I will say I think there are challenges on both the technocratic side and the executive side. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm actually skeptical of, of the industrial march in some ways. Not that, you know, I, I think the thing has a lot of steam in it, uh, definitely. And I, I think I think pretty much every country on Earth is already effectively involved with it. And, and you know, what, what remaining holdouts there are of, of pre-industrial culture are probably going to get wiped off. But it's like do you get absorbed by the industrial administrative thing at its at its most competent and and well running or do you get absorbed by the thing in its decay stage and i you know i i think of uh, honestly like south america i think is is an interesting example here because south america i mean it it has been modernized uh you know much of much of it has been modernized i mean they were having their their you know jacobin revolutions at the same time france was um and and you know it did not modernize as quickly uh as uh as europe and america did but it did modernize fairly early i mean you know the 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 major capitals the big cities of south america have been have been industrialized and and modern for you know 100 150 200 years um and yet you know, the problems of corruption, the patronage cultures, you know, with a couple of exceptions, um, maybe not a couple, maybe a few more than that, but but some of the largest states, right, Brazil, Mexico, um, places like this, uh, Venezuela, they they have never managed to overcome, like they've never managed to impose and socialize, uh, you know, their population into the, the professional industrial mode in the way that, uh, you know, a, a place like France or a place like America did. I mean, Chile sort of managed it, and they had to literally import, like, a cult, or, like, a Prussian a Prussian military yeah. <laughs> cult, effectively, to do it. Right. Um, yeah, right. And, and, you know, they, so they sort of manage it. But it's, it's actually very hard, and it's, 
we we are you know and this touches kind of on your other article as well we are in the sort of you know decaying mandarinate form of the industrial thing now it feels like we 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 don't have that you know the the aristocratic form of it um and so there's definitely a thing there that's going to keep moving forward but i wonder if it actually has the power to transform in the way it did and if it doesn't then I think what we're going to see in a lot, I mean, I mean, what we already see in a lot of places, um, it's easy to like dress up very, you know, very different political realities in this uh, responsible administrative dress. I mean, sometimes functionally, right? Like, uh, I, I definitely think that uh, Japan is an interesting example of this. Uh, and you know, you you and, and even some of the European social democracies, um, you you seem to have these like very different non-modern hierarchies that manage to actually transform themselves into this modern thing that sort of looks very convergent, but maybe isn't as much as we think. Um, so anyway, th- th- there's like a bunch of ways it seems like that could go. The The thing I actually want to focus on a little more um, in our last few minutes here. Uh, well, I, I, okay. First, do you have any thoughts, uh, any final thoughts on that front? And then we can move to the last I think thing. it's exactly right. I mean, when I say we're going to get the kind of monstrosity version of the Gaulist model, that's exactly what I mean, which is to say the broad structure of, you know, technocracy, strong executive, blah, 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 sure. Um, but we get it in a way where um, you don't have, as you say, the kind of mass socialization component, which is extremely difficult to build from the ground up, particularly when you don't have the kind of state capacity that's required, and that you have a kind of perpetual catch-22 where, you know, to get the state capacity, you need to build this kind of strong centralized state. But to build that strong centralized state, you need enough state capacity to socialize the population at scale in the way that are required to get the optimal modes of of, 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 of administration. Um, and then And then that is combined with, as you said, the fact that, again, let's not underestimate the fact that De Gaulle was building on 300 years of continuity in terms of you know, elite culture, elite production pipeline, and so on. And so for countries that don't have that, if you have to socialize both the elite or to replace the elite in the case of the Jacobins, um, and socialize the population at scale and build capacity in a state that is still a kind of developing state uh, that has to play with all sorts of external pressures and a legacy of, say, you know, ethnic tension and sort of thing. I mean, it starts to be a lot of variables to manage. I mean, for better or for worse, a lot of these variables were wiped out in in the case of the goal because it was the aftermath of the Second World War, um, because it was a moment of kind of great national unity in which you could nationalize entire supply chains with no compensation whatsoever without upsetting anybody, in which you could shut down universities and erect new one in an instant without upsetting anybody. I mean, that that kind of counter blanche moment um, might be the only alternative to systems like the Chinese one where these things are built over literal thousands of years. And it's not clear that that either scenario is that likely to occur for, for that many countries. Right. So the final the final element here, um, the democratic element, I think is also worth talking about because, well, it, the you know we we spent a while discussing the roots of the the French Republican democratic culture, uh, and you know those institutions do not exist anymore. 
and you know they have not existed in fact for a long time like you know we we can probably have discussions about like did the did the mass military culture did the experiences like world war 1 sort of replace and reinvigorate that i mean it definitely seems to be the case that the the like you know enlightenment republican thing is somewhat different from the the kind of like mass uh, you know universal enfranchisement uh you know mass citizenship thing so there's clearly development there but we're we're in this strange place now uh where the first the dominant democratic power is obviously the united states which has a very distinct democratic ideology from the uh the french one or most of the european models of this um i i i i'd say that the american version of this tends to be a little more openly partisan right in in that you know democracy is very much defined as what is your relationship to the united states uh however even there uh we've seen you know from the 80s till now definitely over the last 30 years is a turning away like an internal conflict let's say within that culture you know like uh, in the us also the institutions the post war democratic institutions and and a lot of these social institutions that informed it don't exist anymore uh and you know especially i'd say in the last decade the, like the last 10 years all these conflicts with populism you've you've actually seen an interesting turn away in a lot a, a way more explicit form from the you know certain parts of the democratic cultural narrative where it it seems like the importance of responsibility and of expertise these things are more important um like th- you know the the major task of state is not so much representing the people as much as it is making sure that you know each part of the population has its basic rights protected um like you know we we could we could say a lot about that but um it it does seem to be it's already very different from the gallus model but it seems to even be becoming quite different from the 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 american tradition of how it talks about democracy um which obviously you know it it had very radical elements in it uh, at various periods and you know that given that america seems to be moving away from that this interesting thing is going on where china which also calls itself a democracy which you know talks a lot about the chinese people and the chinese nation and where where the party i i mean i would argue that the 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 ccp in some ways it sounds a lot more french than it does american um right it's like the 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 will right or the destiny of the chinese people is not this reducible thing it's effectively what the communist party discerns it to be um and and it has to uplift the population it's the the gaullist the the sort of democracy that informs the gaullist model um like here's a claim i'll make that form of democracy um seems to actually you know in future it, it seems like it could actually be the stronger or at least like the 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 wider the more present one um when we think about like live democratic traditions right if if we take the idea that the anglo-american form of of democratic tradition seems to be dying out i mean even brexit is honestly a good example of this where um 
when that decision is made, in order to give democratic legitimacy, the government took it to direct referendum, which implies that the parliamentary form of that, you know, the, the sort of Burkean laundering thing we talked about earlier, the, the implication there is that that somehow is not legitimate, like it's not really democratic. And, and it's like the, there's, you know, the phenomenon seems to be something like the, the trust in that system, like the Anglo-democratic system seems to be vanishing from the Anglosphere. And what that's leaving behind is like a bunch of the legacy systems, you know, in places like India um, and all over Europe and the then then the Chinese model um, to a degree, right? And it's like you you get people like um, Erdogan or or you you know you get maybe even Putin to a degree that that definitely seem to share the view that well we are democracies, but like what that means is that there is a kind of destiny of the nation uh, that the state has to pursue, and that's a very different thing from you know consultation. Uh, of of the population, like maybe that's fine for local disputes, but that's not what you base, you know, the great destiny of the country on, or something like that. Um, so I I, I want to hear your thoughts on this, like this 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 leg on the chair, like do you do you see it surviving or morphing, or uh, you know what's the direction here? Yeah, I mean, I think to to begin with America, I do think you're right to say. Um, the the American political tradition is interesting because you do get this dialectic in the even in the Federalist Papers, right? The way in which uh, Hamilton talks about the executive as this kind of agent of dynamism, I mean, Hamilton notoriously accused of being a monarchist, um, is quite different from this Madisonian, more and what what you might call anti-political or certainly a kind of domesticated public square vision of what America ought to look like. And one of the ways in which um, you can view our our moment, the obsession with expertise and so on, and the populist reaction to it is as just another iteration of that dialectic between these two traditions, where um, the triumph of expertise is just the kind of ultimate, more unapologetic version of this apolitical brand of liberalism that reduces politics to the administration, to the basic distribution of, you know, a set of rights and maybe a set of economic services at best. Politics becomes a matter of administration and the ideal public square is one that is domesticated. Um, if you're pro this model, you will say domesticated in a good way because it allows people to just pursue their, their individual pursuits and enjoy these rights and basic economic goods. If you're against it, you would say domesticated in a way that paralyzes the popular will and turns people into kind of these, you know, servants of this kind of therapeutic state. Um, but so the, the, the triumph of this more apolitical tradition over the more dynamic tradition and the populist reaction to it being a kind of desperate attempt to recapture the public square and reinject an element of dynamism into it. Um, but one that has so far been unsuccessful. I mean, I think it's fair to say that, you know, um, the Trump administration is a perfect example of someone who on paper would seem to embody this kind of, you know, charismatic, populist, maybe demagogic figure, um, and who would seem to want to use the power of the executive to the fullest extent. But on paper, uh, the Trump administration, for better, um, if you oppose it, for worse, if you're a Trump supporter, um, never quite managed to to domesticate the, the, the technocratic Leviathan. And so that more anti-political mode of politics is still winning. And I'm one of these people who tend to think that, um, again, for better or for worse, the, the kind of populist revolt against against liberal order is somewhat overstated. Um, 
in the West. So in that respect, I think the kind of public square that, that de Gaulle wanted or de Gaulle, de Gaulle envisioned will be extremely difficult uh, to export to these countries that have had this technocratic apolitical mode of governance dominate um, unless um, you see significantly stronger revolts than what we have now. And, and maybe that's a hypothesis that we want to consider. I think what's very different, and, may, and maybe you want to respond to that, if you, if you want to cut me off, please, please do so. What I think is, is different, what I think is different is in developing countries. Um, and there, I think, you see, you see a different story because, uh, I mean, so uh, as I mentioned, I'm half French, half Moroccan. You see a weird iteration of the Gaullist model being proposed in, in Morocco, actually, because they had to make compromises with the kind of dynamic public square slash democratic slash parliamentary component because they wanted to avoid the Arab Spring and they wanted to avoid a revolution that would topple the monarchy and plunge the country into chaos. And so by necessity, they introduced more parliamentary governance and built this kind of intermediary layer with great popular leaders being allowed to enter a parliament that found its power somewhat reinforced from purely kind of theatrical powers. Um, but at the same time, the figure of the king is still very very much there as a narrative center and as this kind of broad direction-giving uh, charismatic figure that that complements and directs the 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 state in, in a specific direction, and at the same time, one of the legacies of, of the French protectorate that has since been built uh, by the Moroccan elite uh, is that technocratic administrative culture, where uh, the Moroccans created a national school of administration that is directly modeled on its French counterpart. The Moroccan education system, after multiple iterations away from the French, uh, the French education system is actually coming back to it, and so in many ways. The contemporary Moroccan education system is closer to the French education system in the 60s that the goal envisioned um, than the actual French education system in 2022. Um, and I think that that structure, you can see an iteration of that in Turkey, as you said, you can see an iteration of that of, of, of many countries that are looking either to the Chinese model in its kind of dangism phase or to Lee Kuan Yew as, as these models of development that are significantly more, more desirable um, than the kind of conventional liberal democracy promises um, that, that animated, say, the Washington consensus for much of the 20th century in developmentalism studies. I think there, there is, a, there is a different opportunity. So we talked about the challenges for these countries to implement the model, but I do think that in every country that is not plagued by this kind of deep-rooted legacy of anti-political, um, anti-political kind of domesticated public square brand of liberal rule um, might very well converge towards that model as a developmentalist frame. Yeah, it, we're, we're, we seem to be in the situation now where I would sort of say be, because a lot of the, um, the frameworks and the live political cultures are in this late stage, uh, you know, which is not to say that they're weak. I definitely agree that the, the I mean, it seems very clear now right? Maybe five years ago it wasn't, but it seems clear now that the level of threat from the populist movements was overstated, um, at least when it comes to institutions of power. Um, but it's actually like what that's done to the political cultures is what's important. So, you know, I, I just kind of just as we were starting here, I saw um, a, a, a fifth circuit, circuit court in the US has apparently ruled against the SEC's power to enforce security laws, uh, uh, securities laws, rather. Uh, and, you know, th this is kind of an interesting instance. I've just been going through replies 
and you know the 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 overall view is like th- this is a terrible thing this is undermining the ability for the state to govern uh and and any anyway, it's bad for all sorts of reasons but the thing that is not brought up is that it is is the question of democracy sort of in either direction right because restricting the ability of of administrative agencies to create law you could argue is a democratic move because then law has to be made purely by the elected political bodies or you could argue you know you'd probably need some more bespoke arguments about why it's anti-democratic but i guess it would probably be something like well these agencies are created by the federal government which is the only part of state responsible to the entire american people and therefore it is undermining the highest ability of the american people to govern themselves you know something like this like you can imagine these arguments but what's interesting is that these arguments don't even really come up at this point right it's like the two sides are are either in favor of of expertise and and of the administrative thing or they are opposed to it and they're opposed to it on effectively like tribal political grounds right and uh that's the so so this cultural prerequisite does not exist and i think that you know i said near the start of this podcast that the the problem with the democratic element is that it is the most mythicized and the hardest to talk about accurately because it is so ideologically core to the the project right that we live under in ways that i'd say the administrative thing and and the executive aren't um at, at least you're able to like have a broader range of critiques of those elements um you know from from different parts of the spectrum and so on but if if the if the cultural prerequisite does not exist especially you know among elites uh then i think that the model is basically in a decay stage and what is not you know the the strength of the remaining thing is not so much based on you know its absolute competency as much as its relative competency relatively speaking it is clearly like dominant and more competent than than anything in the rest of society uh but but there it is right and it's like it's no surprise that we see like a lot of this decline happening across institutions uh i i would say um so then the question is like okay if we are at that stage and you know l- let's you know even if we assume that there's enough um you know in, in enough utility left such that uh you know a country like china probably can still get you know several generations of mileage out of the the existing models fine but for for the you know the segment of the world that is kind of like maxed out the progress that it can get out of those models i think what you have to look at there is uh what where, where the political cultures developing that are doing very different things and i think you know at this stage you you would pretty much have to find like like i mean you know we do not even have the equivalent of like the french societies that we talked about in like the 1700s those don't exist yet um perhaps they will exist at some point perhaps not but it's like i i i i think that you know i i'm suspicious or or at least i don't think there's that much utility in uh the the policy mode of discussing these things uh i i think that that's probably useful in a lot of ways i mean it certainly is useful in a lot of ways because we kind of have to we have to take care of right the next 72 hours of existence um or or of wars in ukraine or what have you but in in terms of like the fundamental political model 
if we want to see where that's going, then we basically have to figure out which political cultures actually have energy behind them. Um, you know, wh whether the kind of the expertise thing is is entirely decadent, I'm not sure. Um, you know, I, I, there's there's probably a, a contrarian take someone could give me on why it's actually still quite powerful. Um, so I, I, I guess maybe to close here, I, I'd like to hear from you. Where, if anywhere, do you see political culture that is actually outside of something that already exists in this Gaullist synthesis? Yeah, that's a difficult question. I mean, I think um, one of the things I will say is that a lot of it hinges on this reintroduction of dynamism into the public square. Um, because one of the things that you see with, say, populist movements is that they try to create alternative institutions. They claim to want to kind of shape an alternative elite to some degree. You know, a lot of them have read Burnham. A lot of them do consider themselves to be Leninists, uh, whether they're on the right or the left. Steve Bannon famously said he's a, he's a right Leninist. So there is this desire to create a kind of elite-driven social fabric at first and then to use the dynamism that stems from popular discontentment to reinject something meaningful into the public square. The problem is that oftentimes the kind of populace that we're dealing with is actually meaningfully different from a populace that is being kind of put into movement in a kind of Gustave Le Bon uh, revolutionary crowd situation. What you have more often than not is as a result of this expertise-driven mode of politics perhaps or as a result of other factors, um, a populace that is so depoliticized that even when they turn to populist revolt, uh, they do so in this kind of very, you know, politics as a consumer good way of, you know, someone like Donald Trump is, is the perfect example of this, where, you know, Donald Trump is a kind of, he's selling an aesthetic, he's selling a product. Um, there is nothing there that goes beyond that. And the populace is so depoliticized and they're, and their engagement with politics is so surface level, which is to say, you know, they watch a couple of uh, political ads on TV, then they'll wear maybe a hat or something, but it basically stops there. I mean, this is one of the things you you have to admit about something like January the 6th, which is, you know, um, talk, talk of insurrection aside, and I do think that January the 6th is significant symbolically, but it's worth noting how kind of pathetic of a coup it is. Um, it's, it's what you have, you know, this is what happens when you have a population that is so depoliticized uh, so domesticated and that has a, a conception of the of, of the public square that is kind of so low stakes in a way it's it's like you know that's what coups look like it, it, it's kind of pathetic in a way at least, at least that's my take on it and so yeah i mean you can't tell me you think you live under a totalitarian regime and then then live stream yourself storming the senate no that's that's exactly right i mean this is you know in france there is a there is a, an expression which is an elephant giving birth to a mouse and that's you know when you, the magnitude of your diagnosis doesn't match your prescriptions or your actions at all you know so it's like if you actually right. think that the government the government is run by this like cabal of pedophiles and your solution is to go in a completely disorganized way wearing viking helmets storm the capital and then taking selfies along the way while staying within the ropes so that you can admire the statues on the side i mean you know that that is just and again i, I don't mean to you know journey the six has been kind of severely overinterpreted, and i certainly don't mean to to kind of engage with that discourse more than is strictly necessary. I just think it's representative of the problem here, which is there is this popular energy that is challenging this kind of expertise-driven consensus, but the way in which the expertise-driven consensus might hold on to power is if 
the theatrics of power are enough to kind of entertain the populace away while the fundamental kind of core of power, the fundamental institutional core doesn't change at all. And I think that that's one of the things you're seeing with the, with the right. kind of iterations of populism. That's why I say the threat is overplayed. Um, now, when it comes to actual... Well, it's it sort of, sorry, just, just to interject there, it's... it's, it's you, you kind of have to understand that a system generates its own opposition and that opposition should all sort of be seen as a part of um, the system that exists, right? It like almost like an equivalent thing to how you can have, you know, the legal sphere and then these like extra legal exceptional types of exercising power. Uh, Like likewise, a ruling ideological system will usually be able to create and shape and discipline its own opponents, um, in 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 important ways, and you know that's clearly what's happening here. I think. Yeah, um, and so I think you know when it comes to to looking for pockets um, of elite social fabric that represent an approximation of the of the salons and so on. Um, I I don't think there is much in the U.S. I think that there are individual institutions. I mean, Palladium being one of them in a sense. Uh, that are, that are trying to create an approximation of that and are trying to kind of inject some energy at least at least at the elite level you see something similar in France with you know there is this whole kind of um, tiny part but highly influential part of the intelligentsia uh, Michel Welbeck is part of this there is this guy called Michel Onfray um, who's a leftist turn reactionary and these are essentially a core of intellectuals who live on nothing but book sales at this point so their popularity and their direct influence on unpopular opinion are the only thing that keeps them keeps them influential and keeps them eating and they basically i mean you know the the number is about 10 intellectuals uh but they basically have as much space in french intellectual discourse and even in french political discourse at large as the thousands of intellectuals who think against them um and so i think i think you in france it, it takes this form because there is this cult of the public intellectual but i think this idea of slowly but surely construction kind of elite driven social fabric at the top that's what that's what the model looks like for sure um now i tend to be on the more pessimistic side as to whether this is happening or not in most kind of western liberal democracies i think you see more hope in a lot of developing countries so in in morocco for instance i think you do see these factions of 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 young moroccan elites who often you know they 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 went to university at uh, at oxford or they went to the ivy league um, and they they didn't come back completely radicalized uh, in the sense of becoming total reactionaries, nor did they embrace um, kind of purely American uh, liberal progressive ideology. They kind of come back discontented with what they saw in America because they had high expectations, and they embraced these kind of again Lee Kuan Yew obsessed ideologies of developmentalism that at least I see growing in 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 ideological momentum among a lot of kind of young elites in developing countries in say the arab world um and and parts of asia and i think there you might actually see the most interesting iteration um of that model Hmm. let me give uh uh perhaps a less respectable uh couple of examples here um one area that's interesting and I'll, I'll give two that are in France, actually. One area that's interesting is organized crime. And here I'm thinking of, like, the gang structures that exist in cities like Marseille, um, where you have entire cities, you know, neighborhoods, which are effectively outside of the jurisdiction of the Republic, 
which are run on, I mean, networks that are based on personal relationships, reputation, patronage, and the ability to project violence and to operate in black markets. Um, the other one is the, the the kind of the more influential mosque systems in the Banlus, right? In in these kind of immigrant neighborhoods, uh, where the 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 mosques, the masjids, can become sort of forces of order and and create these alternative um, spaces where where you know young people maybe they don't even get entirely drawn out of organized crime, but but they create a sort of um, you know they're able to use the the authority that they have to 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 enforce order and and make sure the the different relationships are functioning better uh both of those are interesting to me because they operate completely outside or mostly outside the official french systems they are also ideologically opposed to the french state in important ways like neither of these is integrable into the Republic and into the Gaullist model. Now, I, I'm not really claiming here that either of these is going to, you know, somehow become a successor to the Gaullist model. Like, you know, neither of these is is quite like a state in waiting in any sense, um, particularly like the gangs, you, you know. Uh, but you see something similar with the gangs in Mexico, right, with the cartels where, where these groups are exercising power such that they are contesting state control in areas um what does make both of these interesting is that you definitely have at least on the city level already compromises being made with those forces right like the organized crime and the more powerful religious communities you the system kind of has to strike deals with them in various ways. Now, I suspect that if the French state really had the will behind it, it could probably wipe both those forces out. Um, however, it does not, at least at this point, seem to be going in that direction. And I think that when you have not just 10, but 20 or 30% of the society under the control of those institutions, like at the very least, I mean, even if you were to overthrow them, now 30% of the population has been socialized into a very different political culture than than what you're starting with. And it's like, these are the cultures, you know, sometimes in, in crisis moments, these are the cultures from which the, you know, charismatic individuals arise. And so the preconceptions they have when they reorganize the state are going to be very different, right? And so you can have ideological evolution occur that way. The other thing that can happen is that they become strong enough that they, you know, undermine the functioning of the current model in severe ways, right? S such that um, it may be able to sort of reconquer that territory, um, but but it has to have internal ideological updates, or uh, you can even just have the thing go into retreat, right? And it's like you you just have contested territory, and you know the 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 political culture that had encompassed all of society at one point now becomes something that is like limited to increasingly few groups of people um and you know like you can think of the way that like roman culture in in britain in the 400s uh at that point it's this thing that's kind of like left to a few remnant you know you know colonial aristocrats basically and and the 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 legions are leaving and, uh, you know, eventually what remains of that culture has to kind of become part of a new mixture.
for it to survive and it evolves in a significant way. So I, I generally think that if you're going to be looking at uh, spaces where the political logic is fundamentally different, they're either going to be so upstream that they're not recognizable yet as political forces, or you actually have to go like outside of these so-called dissident spheres, which are usually pretty fake, and you actually have to go to these like underground spaces that you know, or underworld spaces, you could even say, where where just completely different forms of political logic rule that space. You know, that's fair enough. I mean, in fact, I mean, to to take the French example, I do think the kind of double movement you described of, on the one hand, you could see these spaces kind of rise in influence and power, but on the other, they can also kind of awaken the system and force it to reinvent itself. Um, that's actually happening, I think, on both sides, because as you said, I mean, on the side of, if you take the the mosques in the in the banlieues as an example you do see that significantly expanding with some tacit cooperation from the french state the classic example i love to give is in the banlieues surrounding the city of lyon um, where you know the french government dumped literal billions of euros of a 40-year period to you know repaint the buildings have better schools better public services blah 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 the usual kind of um set of policies that come with with trying to tame uh the banlieues all of that failed miserably. And then the mayor of Lyon allowed the construction of a kind of Islamic cultural center that was financed in part by Saudi Arabia. Um, that was basically a kind of all purpose center where you know you had a kind of swimming, uh, gender segregated swimming pool, um, Quranic lessons on the weekends, a school, obviously a mosque, a kind of com community center in short. And you saw decreased crime rates and better kind of empirical results across the board. I mean, you know, decreasing unemployment, the kind of thing, almost kind of, you know, nation of Islam style developments that you saw in the US in the 20th century in certain pockets of, of black and cities, you, you, you saw that happening in real time. Now, whether the fate of these of these zones will be the same fate as that of the nation of Islam, namely being devout and relegated into irrelevance, um, we'll see, but it's definitely true that they have also provoke, provoked kind of shock to the system. Um, and you saw, I mean, even Macron, I think people who reduce Macron's kind of increasingly muscular liberalism to a pure kind of electoral posture designed to capture some of the voters on the right as f French public opinion is shifting rightwards. I think are partly correct, but are kind of missing the point that there is a broader ideological shift happening. And you see it in the in the advisory, in, in the circle of advisors around Macron. You see it even in people who are members of the, the presidential majority in, in the parliamentary houses. Um, these are people who tend to kind of re-embrace the kind of muscular or masculine liberalism or masculine republicanism we we talked about today. One that, that was on the retreat at least until until not so long ago. So I think the double movement you describe is, is absolutely accurate. Um, the question is... Um, how applicable that double movement is uh, across across the West, but that's that's a subject for another time, perhaps. Yeah, well, yeah, we're coming up onto about two hours, I think. So uh, that's probably a good place for us to wrap up for now. Matisse, uh, it's been great having you back on. Uh, hopefully, we'll talk again soon. Thanks for making time today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. I've been talking with Matisse Beton. Um, so the article uh, is called "De Gaulle's State of Tomorrow." You can find that on our website. You can also find it in Palladium 5, our latest print edition. And again, uh, if you want to get more info uh, and receive print editions, uh, you can find that info at palladiumag.com slash subscribe. Again, that's palladiumag.com slash subscribe. Thanks again, everyone. Uh, we'll see you next time. Bye-bye for now.